0: Welcome to Curve Vonnegut Radio. I'm Gabe Hudson. And as you know, this podcast is dedicated to truth tellers. Because the truth is contagious. And today we have a very special guest writer. Someone I've been wanting to talk to for a while. Sari Botten. Sari recently published her beautiful, embracingly honest memoir. And you may find yourself... Confessions of a Late-Blooming Gen X Weirdo. Sari is also the founding editor of the much-beloved Substack publication, Oldster Magazine, where she's published work by Cheryl Strayed, Disha Filia, Maggie Smith, and Danny Shapiro. So this episode should be of great interest to anyone who is a late-blooming writer or creative, aren't we all? and anyone who runs a magazine on Substack. Previously, Sari was an editor at Longreads and Catapult. So not only does she have an extraordinary editorial eye, she's also highly skilled at building online literary community. Sari spent much of her life feeling like a misfit, highly relatable, and struggling to find her place in the world. The good news is, is in this interview, you're catching Sari when she is reaping the benefits of her decades of hard work, her courage, her dexterity of mind and her creativity at a time when she's really trusting her instincts and forging her own path through the chaos. This combo was a lot of fun. So please join me now as we enter the heart and mind of author and editor, Sari Botton.
1: My parents divorced when I was ten and a half. Um and, and which, was
0: that that was like in the seventies? I mean, because my parents split yeah. like when I was five, it was like a p- apocalypse of it was the divorces. divorce
1: boom. Yeah. Yep. It was the divorce boom of the seventies. And that also kind of defines me, um, and makes me very Gen X, you know. Yes. Um, I think that Gen X is very much defined by um Having been brought up by parents who started out one way and then changed the sexual revolution and women's lib and, you know, all of that. Um,
0: And also maybe they didn't keep their kids uh, apprised of these changes as they happened. So looking back, quite a mystery what all that was. Am I right?
1: Exactly. All of a sudden, my parents went from being like the parents in Dick and Jane to like these disco ducks, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were like on the single scene and dressed in satin. And, you know, it was just bizarre. It was just such a weird thing to observe without any. Un- I don't think they understood what they were going through. Right. Um, and so and it wasn't just me. In fact, I saw so many other kids around me their families break up and i started to become hyper vigilant and anxious about that happening to my family and then of course it happened to my family because it happened to everyone so you know the stuff that i write about in my memoir i'm really writing about larger phenomena they're Mm -hmm. not just exclusive to me it's not just about my family about my parents about me it's really about you know things that happen to people like me I I felt that
0: I felt that very much like I identified with a ton in in your memoir. That's why I was like, so keen to talk to you about it. I mean, to me, like, I know you've done a bunch of therapy from your book. Um, I've done a fair amount, maybe not quite as much as you, but I have done significant work. Um, It took me quite a long time to understand that, that the divorce was probably like the great wound for me. You know, I was five, I was an only child and just Mm. something I never really recovered from or understood. And like you, I spent a lot of time trying to put a happy shine on things, you know, and to try to get in, fit in, you know, I I tried to get in where I didn't fit in. And it was it was really challenging. And I knew all my friends back then, they had divorced parents, too.
1: Yeah, it was um, I think it was a great wound to our entire generation, really yeah. <laughs> that divorce boom. Um, and I, yeah, I, I have not recovered and I might never, It it is the thing. It's the biggest thing, um, in my life that divides my life into before and after. Right. Um, right. and, and, um, I never really got back to any sense of normalcy. Although now that I really look back, it never was really normal. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But it is interesting. Um, Like sometimes people say, get over it or, you know, I I just can't. It defines my experience. And yeah, it's just the thing I might never get over.
0: I mean, oftentimes the people saying that too are people that didn't endure that particular circumstance. So it's like, yo, maybe you don't know what it's like to try. Trust me, I tried to get over it. Like I went along with the game for quite some time, took, took extra work to like be mindful and figure out what was going on. And Um, it also
1: like, it never really ends. Like my, my father remarried, my mother remarried twice. I've had different step siblings in and out of my life. Uh, My mother's second husband was a jerk. And, hmm. you know, I had these stepbrothers who were in my life for six years and we were pressured to say, I love you to each other. And then they were gone and i don't miss them but like this thing of like well we're living in the house together might as well say i love you oh yeah
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so i'm curious also there was a moment in your childhood you referred to in the memoir where you said uh people were laughing at you but like you didn't know why and and i was i was like that that resonates with like an experience that i had um Mm. And I think that's why uh, part of the book just felt relatable. I think that we have like some similar impulses.
1: I think so too.
0: And what happened in, as a child, like I got my feelings hurt. I cried a lot by myself, you know, because people, why are they laughing at me? Then one day it finally dawned on me, like, this is a good thing. Just embrace it and like make people laugh. It was a huge turning point in my life. And I'm curious if you've, if you felt that inclination, that just felt like a true version of me. I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but I'm curious, did you ever have an experience then where you sort of jujitsu that to your advantage? And,
1: you know, it's been a journey. Um, First of all, I want to acknowledge that it must've been harder for you as a boy because I think that um, it's okay. It's more okay. And always has been more okay for girls to cry and, be embarrassed and, you know, laughed at. Um, I mean, not it's not good for anybody, but I, I imagine that must've been harder for you. Um, it,
0: it was not easy because what happened is as I doubled down on it, the more sincere I became, the more funny I became. And I just was like, eventually I was just like, okay, you got to go with this, but please continue. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I still struggle with this a little bit. I I care too much whether the cool kids like me or think I'm cool or are laughing at me. And I've experienced, you know, in our little high school of media people, you know, being laughed at a little bit or finding out that somebody said something behind my back and um, it always hurts. But I often come around to this idea that the people that I really wanna know, that I really care about are gonna be more moved by who I am and what I have to say and my honesty, my sincerity, my earnestness. I mean, sincerity, radical, radical kindness, earnestness. These are kind of my kinks. Yeah, <laughs> I'm <laughs> into kinks. that. I love you know? that. That's your kink. It's yeah. who I am. It's, yeah. you know, and and I've never made a bigger fool of myself than when I've, tr- I've tried to seem cool. Right. You know, I'm not cool. I'm, I'm, I'm sincere. I'm earnest. Um, and I, you know. I can be sarcastic I can you know I can kid around and all that but um but I, I've come around to being proud of that's who I am and yeah. also like take it or leave it if, if I'm not for you that's fine um right. and, and and caring less gradually caring less and less about you know the cool kids and what they think
0: yeah and what came through in the memoir was everything you just said and you just you you reemphasize throughout at the different stages of your life. Look, I'm not even there yet. I'm, you know, this was all, this was a slow process of, if you want to call it maturation, I don't really know, but it was a slow journey for you as you evolved. And that's certainly something I can relate to as well. Um, and I do, I couldn't agree with you more that I believe that the people that you are touching and affecting by telling your truth and being so real. It is of such great value to them and sort of who cares, you know, what those other people might say. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I get the nicest emails from people who've read my book or read essays of mine. Um, You know, especially when I'm cringing after really putting something out there, something really personal, I, I get, the nicest emails from people saying, thank you for sharing that. You told my story, the story I couldn't tell. And,
0: you know, that's what I'm in it for. Yes. And like, can you give an example of something like that, that you've done in the last couple of years, something you've revealed that has like resonated with folks?
1: Oh yeah. I, this is one of my favorite stories. I, I have a piece um, in the book called Hurricane Tim. Yep. And it's about, it's not as much about quote unquote Tim, who's not his real name, as it is about um, outdoorsy Sari, a Mm -hmm. version of myself that I created who nearly killed regular Sari with trying to seem more rugged than I was to impress certain men mostly in my life. Um, And I published the book. And then I also, um, I, I excerpted it and I got an email from someone from my past, a woman who said to me, you just articulated for me why I ended my marriage. You told it in a way that I understood myself and my choice, you know, in a way that I never had, Um, And it was someone I didn't even know they got divorced. And she told me that her husband had, you know, he wouldn't even talk to her on their hikes. And the hikes were incredibly difficult. They were way out of her league. You know, I tell the story of a particular hike and camping, hiking and camping trip where like I could have died. And, um, you know, was that in the
0: uh, Catskills?
1: It was actually in the Adirondacks. That's right. Um, we, we went yeah. after it was right after Hurricane Floyd, mm-hmm. so there were all these trees downed. There were all these mudslides, um, and also it was just out of my league to begin with. Um, and I, I, I had never had a good time on these excursions, and I went anyway. And um,
0: and this was a big this, part of this guy's identity, right? And like, he, yeah, he also like did some drinking, had some challenges. Yes. Yeah, he was an so alcoholic. That, That was
1: another thing I talk about a lot in the book. I I used to be very drawn to addicts,
0: um,
1: active addicts. Um, I I think I say in the book that I was addicted to alcohol, not by mouth, but by nose uh, on the breath of a difficult man. (laughs) And this Hurricane Tim was one of those. Um, And, you know, um, hearing from this person from my past, someone I hadn't spoken to in 20 years, that I had helped her understand why and and validate for her why she needed to leave her marriage. Um, that meant so much to me, but also, you know, it was a difficult story for me to tell. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I created this whole persona that right. was so inauthentic to me. It's but so I was relatable
0: also, that you did that. I mean, you were like in your 30s. You. Yeah. So yeah. relatable. I've tried on so many different identities, you know,
1: right. I, yeah. But I was embarrassed by it. And yeah. I was also, you know, embarrassed that I stayed with this person and also embarrassed. I reveal in the story that I used to call 1900 psychics. And I, you know, uh, I, I, I spoke to someone in 1998, who I'm pretty sure was Stephen Glass, when yeah. he was working on his um, fraudulent piece for, I think it was Harper's, um, about phone psychics. And he was the first one who was just like, I mean, it might not have been him, but I think it was. He was just like, you know what? Not everyone is supposed to get you. Just be yourself. And the ones who get you, those are the ones to be with. And the ones who don't get you, just walk away from them so that you can free yourself up to meet the ones who are right for you. And I was like, that just makes too much sense. <laughs> you know? But it it was the last time I ever called a phone psychic, but I was so embarrassed. But I also felt like I had to tell this story. I it was it was my journey to realizing certain things and, and getting over a certain hurdle in terms of trying to be someone I wasn't.
0: Right. And and what I love about that narrative that you told that chapter is the way you set it up, uh You had been sort of like stumbling throughout metaphorically, you know, throughout this relationship on these hikes. And so then when you get to the phone psychic, like I had to remember, oh, yeah, we totally had phone psychics back then. Um, I expect. I thought what was great about like the the mastery of your writing is that like I actually expected you to take another faceplant off of <laughs> the phone psychic. But actually what ends up happening, I went back and read the phone psychics advice because it was so good and so surprising, like three times, you know. Um, so that was just like something I noticed that you did in the narrative there that I really admired.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that.
0: Are you cognizant of that kind of stuff? Like your status shifts in in you, the protagonist, when you're writing like that? Very or- much.
1: Very much. Yeah. Um, and, and that happens in the revisions. You know, um, in the revisions, you can really, you, you really have to write a couple of drafts to and, and take a little break from it to know where you want to steer it, where, you know, that the phone psychic piece was a separate piece from the Hurricane Tim piece. And then I weaved them together because I realized they went together. Um, It had really just been a story about, um, initially about going hiking for the first time I spent Yom Kippur outside of a synagogue. um, And then at the top of the mountain praying for my life.
0: (laughs) Right. I thought that, I love that little like narrative irony. (laughs) So I just want to read a little bit here from your intro. This is just like a passage that like jumped out at me. Um, okay. And this is, here we go. Writing this book has been a great privilege and joy, but it's also been challenging in ways and something of an act of defiance. I anticipate a certain type of backlash, having witnessed as other writers were met with it time and again. And so I offer this note as both a defense and a declaration of intent. As a woman born in the mid-1960s and living in a patriarchal culture, I have always struggled to feel justified in taking up space anywhere, most of all on the page. Writing about my experiences is my passion and chosen profession, but I have always wrestled with feeling entitled to it especially since some deride this kind of work by labeling it navel-gazing and oversharing, which implies it's unwelcome information, especially when it comes from women. These are the thoughts that dog me. Who am I to think my story has value? Who am I to believe anyone will care about what I have to say and about my perceptions of the world around me and my own particular experiences? I talk a good game, but there were moments as I was working on this when I was so daunted, I lost my nerve completely and nearly gave up. Obviously, though, I found my way back to my sense of purpose. I remembered how hard I fought for this opportunity and how fortunate I am to have been given it. It's not something to take for granted or to balk at. I remember how I've stood up for other women writers who've been derided and called selfish and narcissistic, for writing about their own experiences. Oh, yeah, right, I recalled, I've been an advocate for this kind of work, and finally, it's my turn. I remembered how little I knew about the lives of my grandmothers, who both died around my age, in their early and mid-50s. I know even less about one of my maternal great-grandmothers, who succumbed to influenza in 1919, at the age of 25. I remembered how much I relish reading books by women about their lives. I remembered that my voice matters. I'm using it now to take up space, to say, I was here. I thought that was like a very powerful piece of writing, you know?
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I wrote that for me. Um, I wrote the foreword and the intro to remind myself of why I had to do this. Yeah. And I really did give up almost every day. And sometimes I had to give myself permission to give up. So I mean, I I was worrying about it at three o'clock in the morning. And the only way I would be able to fall back asleep is if I said, you know what, you don't have to do this. You could just just don't do it. And then of course, I'd wake up in the morning and say, of course, I'm going to do this. (laughs) You know,
0: (laughs) I want our listeners to really take note of is like, you're, you're in the midst of, you know, your book is about a series of transformations and experiences, but you're in the midst of a transformation, it seems to me right now. Like you just put your memoir out last year and uh, you live in Kingston, New York. Let us note that because I may end up living there someday. That is a place I love and I have thought about living before. Um, And so you're part of a literary community there, but the pandemic hit, you wrote your book and you didn't know what to do. You had been presiding over a writing space that like writers would gather in every day is that correct
1: yeah it was a co-working space for writers called Kingston Writers Studio that I started in 2017 and ran until the pandemic
0: so that closes so you're really kind of got your back against the wall the pandemic you have all this extra time and then what do you do you you come up with a fresh new way and you publish this magazine, which has now become like pretty renowned and beloved Oldster Magazine on Substack. And you start to make your way forward with that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience, the early experience of that and how it came to be?
1: So it was August 31st, 2021. I had a dream that I started a magazine called Oldster. I woke up, joked about it on Twitter, and then i realized wait a second it's kind of a good idea
0: yeah 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 and
1: i went and i immediately started a substack publication i um i have this clock in my office that has like a little bit rainbow it's kind of 80s looking and then i found this bauhaus 93 font like i wanted to come at aging from a new angle so right. i wanted to express old and new in the same you know and and 80s 90s that's still retro but it's not like old timey like 1920s kind of thing
0: right or not to us anyway
1: right not to (laughs) us so i just um you know I, i i just that day went on substack and started a publication and Immediately it, it took off. Immediately I started. Uh, I, I developed the Oldster Magazine questionnaire. Right. That very day, I was like, "What do I want to know?" And um, what, what are know, some I, of
0: those questions? I'm curious, so the audience can hear.
1: Um, well, the first question is, "How old are you?" The yeah. second question is really key. I ask, "Is there another age you associate with yourself in your mind?" And if so, what? Why do you think so? And Almost, I would say 90% of respondents say yes. There is another age in their mind that they associate with themselves, another version of themselves. And some people talk about several. And I think it was Maggie Smith who talked about feeling like nesting dolls. Like she is like a a nesting doll. Um,
0: And Maggie Smith, great poet author of yes. good bones is that the title of that yes yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: and she has um she did the questionnaire and i think someone else talked about feeling like a haunted house
0: oh i love that yeah
1: yeah and and so that it's the second question and so many people love that question and they have so many answers to it that resemble mine i am 10 and a half I'm 15, I'm 35, all of these versions of me live inside of me. Um, They're not really running the show, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I should probably mention too, this is a good overlap. Uh, I always try to find a touchstone to Kurt Vonnegut since, you know, it's like Kurt Vonnegut Radio, so... Uh, in his book, Slaughterhouse-Five, the, the alien species that comes down, they have a different vision of time where all things are happening continuously. All moments mm. are happening continuously. So if you see someone dying, you shouldn't be sad because there's all these other iterations of them that are not dying. And um, it's just something I wanted to mention in the context of this concept yeah. that you bring up in the Ulster questionnaire
1: that really resonates. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes I sense. I feel like I'm a
0: lot of different versions of myself, you know?
1: Well, you know you're going to have to take the Ulster magazine
0: questionnaire. Yeah, I I would <laughs> be delighted to. I would be delighted to.
1: Yeah, I am um, I really uh love the questionnaire. I love you know even if someone's ma- most even if someone makes one with most of the answers not being that unusual. There's always at least one quote, two quotes, that really make me think, and and people love it. People really love the yeah. questionnaire, and and but also I have personal essays and other kinds of blog posts.
0: I love the design. I mean, you mentioned the clock that I can't see that's on the wall there. I was I was like, that's a cool logo. Like I like how you made that. Oh my gosh. I think it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it. That's amazing. Cause I literally clock I the,
1: ordered from Amazon. It's like, you know, it's like, it was like $11. Um, I, I, I'm sure whoever designed it probably is not happy that I'm, you know, using it as part of my logo, but I have a feeling it was probably designed by a machine. Yeah.
0: So. yeah. <laughs> it's it's really nice. I looked I was like, how did she do that? Um, <laughs> so, Also, as you mentioned, you have personal essays in there. And I think it's important that the word oldster, like the way that you are bringing it for your readership, for your following, is it's not about being old per se. It's about the experiences of people in different age categories. Is that right? What is the tagline you have for the magazine?
1: So the tagline is... um, Exploring what it means to travel through time in a human body at every phase of life.
0: I love that. And
1: yeah, yeah I, well, what, what I wanted to know was what's your experience of passing through, you know, this milestone, that milestone. Um, I want, I also, my main, not my main objective, one of my objectives is to normalize and destigmatize aging by showing that it's happening to everyone. I didn't, I, you know, I I really enjoy a lot of the sites that are for women only for women, 40 and older women, 50 and older. I enjoy many of them. I didn't want to make another one. I want men to know what women are experiencing getting older and the same. I mean, everyone of all genders, I wanted everyone to understand what everyone else is going through. And if I only present women, then people of other genders aren't going to read it. And also if, and I want, yeah. So I want all the genders and all the age groups to understand what other people are going through. I'm also interested in someone else's experience of turning 30. I remember when I turned 30, I had to throw myself three birthday parties to distract myself from the, like just the enormity of it. And um, for example, one of my earlier questionnaire respondents was Matt Ortile um, who was one of my editors at Catacult, I had been noticing that on Twitter, he kept talking about feeling old um, and and that he couldn't, uh, you know, his his joints were hurting. He had been a dancer in college and and now he couldn't do what he used to do. And he also talked about, you know, he was 30 and he was dating a guy who was 25 who called him daddy and that freaked him out. And so I thought... I want to know about this. I want to know about, you know, Matt Ortile's experience of turning 30 as compared to my experience of turning 30. And I, so I really want to have an intergenerational conversation going.
0: You know, it was a huge honor to have you on. I'm so grateful to you for making the time.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure to chat with you.
0: Pretty cool, right? So now is when you go buy Sari's memoir and you may find yourself Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. If you go to our show notes, you'll find a link there to buy our book at Bookshop. And after you've done that, go over to Substack and subscribe to Sari's publication, Oldster Magazine. You'll find a link for that in the show notes too. And if you want to go say hi to Sari online, you can find her on Twitter at saribotton S-A-R-I-B-O-D-T-O-N. And you can also find her on Instagram at the same handle. If you want to say hi to me on Twitter, you can find me at Gabe Hudson, or you can come say hi on Instagram at Gabe G Hudson. And if you dig the show, then subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. Each week we deliver one podcast episode handcrafted with love and care, and we'll send it straight to your inbox. This is a listener-supported show, so if you want to support our work, then become a paid subscriber. If you're able to throw some coin our way, then you are the wind and our sails. And not only do you make the show possible, you enable us to continue to offer the show for free to those who are unable at this time to contribute. And don't you think everyone deserves to have some Kurt Vonnegut radio in their life? Jude Brewer was executive producer and editor for this episode. Stay safe out there in the apocalypse, people. And I'll see you back here next week. Over and out.